0: Hey, this is Adrian Hernandez, and welcome to the NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speaker and ask of the tough and interesting questions you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of our Grand Rounds content can be found at RethinkingClinicalTrials.org. Thanks for joining welcome everyone to today's uh, podcast. This is Adrian Hernandez, and I just recently moderated a great Collaboratory Grand Rounds with uh, Rob Caleb, who's uh, Vice Chancellor uh, for Health Data Science uh, at Duke University and also an advisor for Verily. He just gave a great talk on data science and essentially the era of data everywhere. And so I want to welcome Rob for, uh, to our podcast. So Rob, uh you s- you start off with that uh that the data is being curated everywhere um and that's not going to be the the big problem. Do you do you s- uh see uh difficult issues with uh the curation of data or the so-called uh data janitorship?
1: Yeah, so Adrian, what I'd say is data are everywhere. I would say curated data actually not everywhere yet. And, uh, in fact, one of the biggest issues we need to deal with is organizing, um, correcting, uh, collating uh, data and making it presentable in a way that uh, all these fancy analyses can be done. Uh, and, you know, the opportunity is fantastic right now, but one of the main things we all need to focus on is how to take the data we have, which is everywhere, and make it uh, as good as it can be
0: right and then, um when you think about users of data, um often we uh uh seem to miss important users, uh clinicians and people. How do you see that working out in terms of uh, users of uh, curated data and what's needed there
1: yeah, that's a big that's a big topic, and I'd say right now, um almost everyone is overwhelmed with data, and there are multiple dimensions of this. What they're lacking is data that can be digested that's useful for making good decisions. It's almost like um, we have too many choices and there are too many opportunities to be misled by information. So one one aspect that I don't think we talk about enough is that it's not just the amount of data, it's the fact that um, it's a two-way street, The communication is occurring constantly. Uh, that's not a surprise to anyone because we're all on our iPhones or other uh, Android phones or whatever we're using constantly. Um, And so we're overwhelmed with information. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, substance to the old uh, axiom about we have data, uh, information, knowledge, and wisdom. Those are a continuum. And I would say it's a big pyramid with an enormous and growing base of information um, of data, not so much information, even less knowledge, and very little wisdom at this point. So um, one way to think about it is that I don't think the issue is any longer technological; the issue is really cultural and social.
0: You gave a, an example of um, uh, people actually uh, using search to find out uh, about their health. Uh, so. Uh, imagine it, it may be actually quicker and easier to just get online and, and do a search about a set of symptoms like chest pain rather than um trying to set up an uh, appointment, uh park in a in a garage, you know, find uh some your way to a clinic. Uh is do you see that having uh good things or bad things? Uh how is that gonna be handled in the future?
1: Well I I have great confidence in the long run it's gonna be good. I mean who could be in favor of um You know, staying on hold on the telephone, um, eventually getting an appointment that's at the convenience of the doctor, not the patient, and then going and waiting in a waiting room with people sneezing on you and, um, you know, sitting there while the doctor's uh, busy for things that could be taken care of with a text message. And, you know, a number of niche providers are already doing this for people who can pay for it. Um, And and I think a lot of the work now is automating things so this can happen uh, in uh, in everyday practice. You know, again, what we have to do is to figure out how to actually make that work and then um, employ the uh, clinicians um, in a way that takes advantage of that automation so they spend their time uh, doing useful things instead of uh, feverishly trying to type notes into EPIC. I like that. Uh, how, um,
0: what's going to be the evidence base um, or how to create such a platform to note that that actually works and it doesn't have any unintended consequences? Um, uh, is, is there going to be an easy way to, to prove it can work or um, actually show where it has limits or how, how do you see that evolving?
1: Uh, potentially the beauty of everything about medicine based on what we have learned uh, through the history of trying new things is that the proof is in the pudding. You need um, uh, an objective evaluation, preferably with randomizations and this is where um, entities like um, PCRF or the NIH Collaboratory, I think, are leading the way because ideally you can use uh, approaches like cluster randomization to measure what works. Now Adrian, you said uh, without any um, collateral damage in you know, I would argue there will always be unanticipated consequences. It's more a matter of uh, anticipating them, measuring them, and then putting it, systems in place that take care of them. But uh, I would also just point out it seems highly unlikely that if you had a simple question, an email exchange would be worse than waiting for an appointment and going into a crowded waiting room and sitting around for a long time that just doesn't, you know, you don't need to be a genius to figure that out. The question is how do we set up a system that makes that both um, practical but also uh, interesting and fun for those that are doing it.
0: Now, uh, one uh, area that you uh, emphasize is uh, that there are going to be some cultural changes needed. Uh, Some of the examples uh, you uh, highlighted such as um, how people um, uh investigate uh, their symptoms of depression uh, that could be online and and that could actually um, trigger uh, potentially responses uh, to those people in a different way than what we do uh, clinically um, uh, currently or other um, ways in terms of how to actually be okay um, uh, taking care of um, patients who are recommending um, health decisions uh, virtually um, for that kind of cultural change, what's, what's going to be needed? Is it going to be uh, new training of um, clinicians, uh, you know, sharing different models? Uh, what's going to drive the cultural change?
1: Well, I th- I think ultimately um, people who have to be patients will be the biggest drivers because uh, in the, the current system is not serving them particularly well. And I'd say particularly in the United States we have costs that are off the chart and an increasing divergence of our outcomes compared to other economically advantaged countries. And this is quite a stark uh, thing that's happened over the last uh, relatively short period of time with an increased mortality rate in the U.S. now for three years in a row um, and a lot of dissatisfaction with outcomes um, in a setting where the costs are not really coming under adequate control. And so I I think there'll be a lot of pressure from many sides to change what we do. Ten years ago, people would have thought it was insane that you would get in your car and talk to your car about where you want to go, and your car would talk back to you and change what it says based on simultaneous integration of information across the whole U.S. So, you know, if you're going to take a trip across several states, um, all everything happening between you and your destination uh... is taken into account uh... there's just no reason why we can't do that for human health at this point uh... it's just going to be an interesting journey
0: on one thing tied to that journey is the ethical consideration so uh... you know all the attention towards the the data that's uh, being compiled and say uh... facebook or other systems and um... What well, what's what do you see, uh the issues there in terms of how that will evolve in terms of, uh privacy and confidentiality, and then also um, actually making sure that you know people have
1: um, uh, results that and inf- influence the right health decisions. We all need to work together, on the answers. I I believe that veracity on the internet is the problem of our time, and that um, universities in particular because. Universities are a safe, not-for-profit harbor for multiple sectors, you know, law, uh, business, uh, religion, policy, medicine, to uh, commune together uh, to try to solve problems. And I think this is the biggest problem. For every question someone has about his or her health, there is an answer on the Internet We now know from empirical work that um, untruthful answers uh, get to more people faster and last longer than truthful answers. Very good empirical work on this now uh, that's been done. And so we have to develop an approach to identifying and uh, putting forward uh, reliable answers that are based on uh, actual knowledge as opposed to just opinion when the most satisfying answer is going to be one that's totally made up because it can be said with great authority and certainty, whereas a responsible person giving a scientifically correct answer should point out the uncertainties, the caveats, uh, the remaining work to be done, uh, and, and always the possibility that new discoveries will change the answer. So this is a huge um, Issue because the Internet is ubiquitous and the digital divide is pretty much gone in terms of access because um, whether you're talking about the poorest counties in the U.S. or the poorest countries in the world, uh, cell phones are everywhere, and in many circumstances uh, uh, there are more cell phones in uh, underserved areas than uh, wealthy areas because people are very dependent uh, on those communications. And then uh, I think this issue of re, uh, how to give information to people is just daunting, but a great area for people to focus on. I learned a lot about it at the FDA, uh, something like writing a food label that 320 million people need to interpret, and you got very limited space. It's daunting. Um, there's a great article that just came out yesterday, um, and I've forgotten the uh, the source. It was a, more of a popular magazine about the issues with returning results in Iceland, and uh, the article really focused on the um, psychological trauma of people getting results they didn't necessarily want to see. And so, um, you know, I think many of us are committed to returning results to people, but we need to think of it as um, the return of results to people in the right way, taking into account their preferences and... Uh, Issues like their um, psychological state and uh, their um, personal preferences. So there is a huge body of work. It's like we're on a frontier now. We have this amazing tool called the ubiquity of information. But we're just getting started on how to curate, um, organize it, uh, present it, and use it in a way which accrues to human health. And, And then finally, on this topic of ethics, obviously this approach is being used for marketing and political persuasion on a large scale already so I think this is a case where medicine needs to learn from the marketers but for a different purpose to improve health as opposed to separate people from their wallets or persuade them to vote a particular way. And the last thing
0: is uh, when is this all going to happen, the digital transformation? Uh, I noted your slides and, and, and discussion was that it sounded like it was going to be immediate. Uh, 2020 as what you described. Is it that quick?
1: Well, it's already started. And I mean, as you know, Adrian, um, if you are paying for concierge medicine today in the United States, and you got a problem in the middle of the night, a child with a fever, you just send a text message to your uh, clinician and they'll answer right away. Um, it's part of the package. And so I would say it's already started. And um, as I've mentioned many times uh, in my life at Verily, um, you know, I've seen uh, the evidence that many patients, the minute they get home from the doctor, are surfing the web trying to figure out what the heck the doctor was uh, trying to say. Um, so it's here, um, but it's going to evolve, and I think it's up to us um, as a community, as as a, you, you know, multifactorial community to guide this in the right direction. Uh, One way of saying it, just like I think ethics is too important to leave to ethicists, I think um, the uh, digital uh, era of medicine is too important to leave to tech companies. Uh, We need to all be thinking about it and working on it.
0: Well, that's uh, great to end this uh, podcast uh, on, and so I want to thank you for your time here and thank, uh, thank everyone for listening to uh, the Collaboratory podcast. Uh, our next podcast will be with uh, Dr. George uh, Ripsick, and he will be talking about uh, Odyssey, drawing reproducible conclusions from observational clinical data. Thanks for joining today's NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Let us know what you think by rating this interview on our website. And we hope to see you again on our next Grand Rounds, Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time.